Is there a scripture reader in the house this morning? For six years, oh. you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the slave born in your household, and the alien as well, may be refreshed. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. Three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time, in the month of Abib, for in that month you came out of Egypt. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Celebrate the Feast of Harvest with the first fruits of the crop you sow in your field. Celebrate the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in your crops from the field. Three times a year, all the men are to appear before the Sovereign Lord. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me, along with anything containing yeast. The fat of my festival offerings must be kept until morning. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I guess there's a first time for everything. Thank you, Sandy, if you're watching, for reading remotely. And please open your Bibles to Exodus 23. Let's see, where am I here? And let's pray. Lord, um, once again we come to you asking you to be our teacher and to help us understand your word and more importantly to, to live it out. And as we come to this section of law, um, just help us to, to see this through the lens of Jesus and to know what that means for us. Amen. There are two kinds of people in this room today. There are those who like football, and there are those who like the snacks. <laughs> And I'm not going to out myself and tell you what kind of person I am. Um, according to the people who keep track of these kinds of things, uh, this day in America uh, is the day in which more food will be consumed than on any other day except Thanksgiving. And so here are a few stats from a site called uh, TigerFitness.com. On Super Bowl Sunday, Americans consume approximately 1.3 billion chicken wings, 139 million pounds of avocados, 8.2 million pounds of tortilla chips, and 325 million gallons of beer. <laughs> Not to mention soda, candy, um, pizza, but Super Bowl Sunday is this time on the calendar, on our calendar in America, where people celebrate. 
Most people celebrate, I think, just for the, the party, for the food, for the fun. Some people celebrate the game. Um, but it's right up there with Christmas and Thanksgiving on our calendars in terms of partying and getting together and celebrating. We see in the text today that God set into the very laws of his people rhythms of rest and celebration. Uh, so right up there in importance with justice and holiness and not bowing to idols is taking time to celebrate. God commands rest and celebration. Look at verse 20, uh, chapter 23, verse 14. Three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. That word celebrate in verse 14 means to participate in a festival, um, to party. The word shows up in other places in the Bible, such as Psalm 42, when David is looking back fondly on uh, time going to the temple to celebrate, and he says how he used to go to the temple, quote, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. God is serious about celebration. Um, he does not just permit or tolerate celebration. He actually commands it. What does that tell you about who God is? Now that Jesus has come, we have even more reason to celebrate. As uh, St. Augustine wrote, the Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. Um, but how many of us can honestly say that we experience this kind of joy in our lives? That we can enter celebration wholeheartedly? That we can have a God-centered um, uh, joy and, and, and capacity for fun and partying? In my experience... Our lives are somewhat divided, and we know how to have a good time with getting together with friends and eating lots of food and partying, but those things don't always have Jesus at the center of them. And we know how to do spiritual things and religious things in church, but those honestly aren't always the most fun, right? I mean, Christians are known for a lot of things, but unfortunately one of them is not being the most joyful, celebratory, hilarious, uh, festive people on the planet. And that's too bad because what we see in the scriptures is that salvation produces joy and celebration. And God commands his people to celebrate regularly, to remember what God has done, to worship him and just to enjoy being together in his presence. At the end of the day, following Jesus is not about being serious and somber and intense. It's about joy. It's about uh, laughter. It's about lightheartedness, celebrating, feasting. But what I see in this passage and, and what I think we need to learn today is that joy does not just happen. It's not just a feeling that strikes you out of the blue. It's not something you can produce by trying to feel good, uh, contrary to what our world tells us. 
there are some things we need to do to enter into the joy that God has for his people. And I don't know about you, but I need more joy in my life because this, this world can be a dark place. It can be hard. There's, uh, there's hard stuff in all of our lives. And we need the joy of the Lord. We need the joy of the Lord. So I see in this passage two ways in particular that we can pursue that. Two ways we can get serious about celebrating. One is an outward thing and one is an inward thing, although they're both related. So first, the outward part. Make space in your schedule for joy. Make space in your schedule for joy. Notice how the Lord schedules rest and celebration for his people. In verses 10 through 12, God commands the observance of two kinds of Sabbath rest. The first is that every seventh year, this is interesting, the land should rest and be unplowed and uncultivated so that the poor can eat its produce, whatever grows naturally, and so that the wild animals can be fed and restored. And this is probably done in rotation, so you, you didn't have to wait seven years if you were poor to get fed. Okay, the second type of rest was one day out of every seven, workers would rest from their labor. Um, verse 12, six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest. God even cares about the animals. And so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed the people that would typically do most of the work. God wanted them to rest. And beyond this weekly rhythm of ceasing labor, the Lord puts three annual festivals on Israel's calendar. Look down at verse 16 and following. The first festival is called the festival, festival of unleavened bread. Excuse me, verse 15. The festival of unleavened bread, which was closely associated with Passover. This was a spring festival that took place right as the barley harvest was beginning. All of these festivals, by the way, center around agriculture. So people would enjoy fresh-baked barley cakes and the first fruits of that crop. And of course, observe the Passover, which we talked about a few months ago. A very important festival for Israel to remember their redemption from Egypt. The second annual festival in 16 is the Festival of Harvest. Um, this is also known as the Festival of Weeks or Pentecost. It's called Pentecost because it's five, uh, 50 days or seven weeks after Passover. Um, and so this was another harvest festival when the wheat crop was just beginning. Um, and then the third festival was called the Festival of Ingathering, a.k.a. First Fruits, a.k.a. Tabernacles. They have different names in the scriptures, but there are these three annual parties, festivals. And um, that was sort of the end of the harvest when the olives and the grapes were ripe. And so people would enjoy probably 
wine and grapes and, and lots of good food. But all, all three of these observances were, were parties. They were time, I think, about a week set aside for worship, for feasting, for celebration, for fun traditions. It usually began with a Sabbath and ended with a Sabbath, so people would rest. These were high points on Israel's calendar. Can you imagine if our whole country took the three same weeks off every year and everyone just stopped working and had a big party? That's hard to imagine. I'm, I'm not saying we should. What does it tell you about God's heart that he wrote into his law these times of rest and celebration? It tells me that he cares about uh, restoring our souls. We need rest. We need joy. It's not something that should be like, if we have time for it, when all the work is done, we can take some time off or we can have fun. It matters. It matters to prioritize in our schedules rest and celebration, God-centered celebration. Some Christians think they should celebrate the Sabbath and the festivals as closely as the way Israel did as possible, and they buy all kinds of weird accessories and, and Jewish instruments and they, they try to just duplicate what Israel did and, and that is missing the point. We've been talking for a few weeks about Israel's law and how these laws are not written to Christians. These are written to the nation state of Israel for a certain place and time in salvation history. Now that Jesus has come, he is the fixed reference point that we look to to understand how to rest and how to celebrate. Um, in the book of Colossians, Paul says something quite amazing about Jesus' Jesus' relationship to the Sabbath and to the festivals of Israel. Uh, some people in uh, the church in Colossae were teaching that you had to believe in Jesus and observe all of Israel's festivals and the Sabbath to be saved. And Paul says, no, wait a minute. Colossians 2, 16 through 17. I'll just read this as you listen. He said, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. In other words, they didn't have to keep kosher. Or with regards to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Listen, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So picture, picture Jesus standing here in the, the center of history. And there's a light here that casts his shadow back over the Old Testament. And within that shadow, within Jesus' shadow, are the festivals and the Sabbath and all of Israel's laws. And Paul is saying, we now have the real thing. We can look straight at Jesus and understand how to rest and how to celebrate. We have the real thing. The New Testament follows the, the shadow of the Sabbath to Jesus. And we're told in Hebrews 4 
that Sabbath rest, true Sabbath rest, is to know Christ and to enter his salvation. In other words, he is the cure for all restlessness, for all anxious striving to save ourselves because he has, he's paid for our sin. We can trust in his work to hold our lives and the universe together. Uh, we can take our hands off the wheel. We can learn not to take ourselves so seriously. That's what true Sabbath rest is now for Christians, is to rest in Jesus. But that does not mean that we should not still build into our schedules chances to take rest and celebration. Right? Well, that's one reason that we come together on Sundays for, to worship is because it matters to have this on our schedule, to make it a priority to come with God's people and sing to Him and celebrate and talk and pray together. Um, it's also important to have a regular day off work when you can sit back and remember that, um, that God makes the world go around and not you, and you can rest in his provision. And beyond that, we set aside times for holidays and family gatherings and vacations and those times of deeper and longer celebration. And it's not always easy. Because life has a way of creeping in and trying to, to um, tell us those things aren't as important or they're too expensive or they're not practical. Meg has a brother in Denver and his family and a brother in Chicago and they're his family and her parents are in New York. There's 19 of us all together and for a number of years we have... Um, it's almost like a spiritual discipline of trying to gather the whole family every summer. And it's become harder and harder. The more people that we have, the more schedules we have, the more costly it becomes to travel. And so there are emails and FaceTime calls and number crunching and, and, and conferences about how are we going to make it work this year. But it is an important thing to do. Just this past summer, um, when we were planning for the last summer's gathering, we were having a really hard time finding a place that could accommodate all 19 of us and a place that we would actually enjoy staying in. Um, and we were wondering just how, how is this going to work and is this even practical to do anymore? Miraculously, God provided us with free of charge with a, a beach house in Lake Michigan, right on the lake. This amazing, enormous house that some people own and just give it to families in ministry for rest. And as we came in the door the first day, we saw above the, the mantle a large uh, print of a word that said uh, two words, the refuge. They named this place the refuge. And I think rest and celebration are like that. It's a refuge from the pace of life, from the demands of our schedules, from 
the, the stresses of everyday existence. And it doesn't have to be elaborate or fancy or expensive. But when we take it seriously to make space in our schedule for rest and for celebration, I think God honors that and God blesses us in that. Well, this leads to the, the second part of what I see here in this text, the, the inward part of pursuing joy. And that's this. Make sure your heart is in the right place. Make sure your heart is in the right place. The external things we do, like scheduling, won't really make a difference unless our hearts are right with God. Let's look at how God told Israel that in this passage. Uh, Verse 13. Verse 13. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. You see, God wanted his people's wholehearted loyalty. There were lots of other gods and and options for who to worship around Israel. And God said, I want you to obey me and be loyal to me. And other verses in this passage address the condition of our hearts. The end of verse 15 says, No one is to appear before me empty-handed. And then verse 19, Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. As God's people assembled to worship, they were told, first of all, not to come empty-handed, but to show up with some type of thank offering to give to the Lord. And they were to offer their best, the best of their crops, their first fruits to God for his use, which symbolized the, the, the best of what they had, those first Uh, that first ripe bunch of grapes or basket of figs or bushel of wheat, which represented the harvest that was to come. It's like saying, God, everything belongs to you. I'm going to give you the best of what I have. And the point is that that shows a heart that believes God deserves it, that God is best. I mean, at this point in the story, God had freed his people from Pharaoh. He had split the Red Sea. The very day they got this law, they had eaten manna from heaven. God had shown them his love and his power and his care again and again. And he's saying, do you believe that I'm worth it, that that I deserve the best of what you have? There are a few commands in verses 18 and 19 that seem bizarre to us. Like, what's with this, do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk? (laughs) Well, these, these laws, too, reveal a concern for worship being pure and people prioritizing purity in worship. Scholars believe that, that cooking a, a young goat in its mother's milk was a pagan Canaanite custom, probably a fertility ritual. And so God is saying, You are to shun those practices in your worship and be pure and loyal to me. See, it's about our heart. Wholehearted devotion. 
it isn't a big leap with that principle to apply it to us. Because Jesus has said, be careful to obey my commands. And if you are my friends, do what I say. And make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Jesus is after our wholehearted loyalty and obedience. Obedience is a path to joy. Contrary to what the world around us says, that it thinks that, that if you want to have fun, you have to break the rules because rules are there to make life boring. But God says real joy is found in obedience, in conforming to God's plan for your life, in loyalty to him. He, he designed us. He knows what will make us happy. Happiness is found in following him. You know, the, you know the song, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. If you want to be carefree, then be careful to obey God. We can't expect to disregard Jesus' commands or live in ignorance of them or disobey them and then come to church and seek some spiritual high. That's not the way it works. Joy and spiritual happiness is a byproduct of obeying God. A heart that is loyal to Jesus will know that he deserves the best. So I hope that you came here today with a desire to give God the best of your time, the best of your income, the best of your affection and praise. And of course, it isn't just about Sunday. In Hebrews 13, 15, we're told, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. If your joy is found in Jesus, that will overflow in praise to him. So make space in your schedule for celebration and rest. And more than that, make space in your heart for joy. Every little choice you make to be loyal to Jesus is a step toward joy, toward happiness, toward celebration. Don't let anyone tell you that anything else will give you more joy than following Jesus. So I wonder if the Holy Spirit um, is tapping you on the shoulder this morning with any invitation or reminder or correction and saying, hey, Jesus is asking, asking you to be loyal to him in this way. I don't know what that is. Only you know what that is. That is a step toward joy in your life. You know, the whole salvation project that God is up to is about joy. Is about everlasting pleasure and happiness. We know that Jesus fulfills the meaning of Israel's Sabbath and feasts and it occurred to me that, that Jesus' life and ministry and, and work, death and resurrection, map onto Israel's feasts in a really interesting way. 
So when did Jesus die and rise again? What, what feast of Israel? Passover, festival of unleavened bread. Um, when did Jesus send the Spirit to start the church? Pentecost. And the New Testament authors call Jesus in his resurrected body the first fruits of a great harvest. In other words, he is the first and best of all who believe in him who will be raised from the dead at that great final harvest of souls to live with God forever. And the book of Revelation says heaven is going to be one big party, one feast, one huge celebration of what Jesus has done as we enjoy him and each other and God's presence forever. Sometimes here in this world, uh, as we turn our hearts toward God and as we make space for him, he, sh he just shows up and gives us a foretaste of heaven. Uh, this past week, in a little Christian college in Kentucky called Asbury College, uh, they had a regular Wednesday morning chapel service at 10 a.m., and it, and it was going to end at 11. But as people started to leave that service, um, some folks were felt moved by the Spirit just to stay and pray for one another and keep worshiping God. Well, people came back. The band kept playing and singing. And people were praying and confessing sin and uh, weeping tears of joy and celebrating and then more people came and more people came and that night chapel was still going and on Thursday morning chapel was still going and on Friday it was still going and yesterday there were hundreds of, or thousands of people packed in there and as of right now as of a few hours ago it is still happening there's a movement of God bringing joy and celebration and holy loyalty to Jesus right now. Sometimes God just shows up and does that. And may we experience the same kind of joyful revival here in Vermont. You know, our whole lives are meant to be a rehearsal for the huge party of heaven and yes, there are sorrows in this world. Yes, life is hard, but we have so much to celebrate. Our sins are forgiven. We are set free. We are infinitely loved. The grave has no claim on us. We have each other. We have the fellowship of believers. So take that joy to your Super Bowl parties today and take that joy into the world this week. And may God be glorified as we celebrate him.